The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you liked the class and... Uh... Hey, it's Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been have taken 2606 with me. So you'll see, you'll, you'll notice that some of these slides are vaguely familiar, exactly the same. Um, I have to get everybody to the same place. And it's interesting that the focus, of course, in 2606 in brain and behavior, which is now called Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience, just passed. Um, the function, sorry, the focus there is a lot more on behavior in general and also things at the synaptic level, things like that. Typically, when we're studying something complicated and much more of a sort of a macro phenomenon like memory, um, while it is important to know the, the, the neural stuff, we're just using it as a way to understand memory. We're using it as a tool, not as an end into uh, and of itself. Right. So, a few things here. Memories have to be in your brain. <laughs> like, where the hell else could they be? Now, there is a cra there are crazy notions out there that there's memories in other parts of your body. Uh, we had a, had a student. We have a student who uh, in the in our program who uh, has had uh, lung and heart transplant. And I had no idea about this, but two years ago when she gave her presentation in this class, she told me that there's a whole set of people out there who have had organ transplants who believe that memories from their donors are transferred into them. That is completely batshit crazy, but people believe it. And she looks at these, and she, I said, where the hell did you find this? There's apparently one peer-reviewed paper, which is in a not-good journal, and then there's a whole bunch of uh, Facebook groups, basically. It was a fascinating paper and a fascinating topic. Um, and a buddy of mine, uh, Ken Herndon, uh, who's a university librarian, who's had a kidney transplant. I keep asking him, so your memory's changed at all? Is it, is it anything like your hands now? Uh, so there are people who believe those things, but they're really bizarre, fringy things, right? It's like people thinking that memory can be passed on through your DNA because of uh, epigenetics. That's just insane. There's no way it works that way. So we know it's the brain, the nervous system in general, we could go there. Because there are things you learn and get better at that are cerebellum, spinal, things like that. Okay? So it's not that it's simply the brain, but it's, you know, that's just, that's just generally simple. So it's got to be somewhere. Now, when I say somewhere, this makes me think of localization, the idea we have a memory center. And this is a notion that people had for a very long time. Especially when, and we'll talk a bit about people at Kenfield, started looking around, basically literally poking around in the brain and, and, and finding stuff and looking at localization. There are localized centers for doing things. We have a cough center. We have a vomit center. Why don't we have a, brain, a, a memory center? And it certainly isn't like that. So when I say it's somewhere, there are certain that 
need certain structures to work properly. But it's not the case that we have, that all our memories are stored in some little ganglion somewhere in our cortex. Okay, so it's, it's certainly more complicated than that, which makes a great deal of sense. So when we say, like, where are they stored, and how are they stored? This is something I talked about the other day when I talked about questions people have about memory. It's not, it's not the case that stuff is, is, is this simple. Okay. They're just in one place. How are they stored? Maybe patterns of activation. The best guess right now is that when you experience something, there is some pattern of activation in your brain, obviously. And what memories do is they somehow encode what that pattern of activation was. Or be similar encoding, I guess. It's present tense. And then when you recall it, that similar pattern of activation comes back. That would be probably for episodic type memories, right? Experiential things, autobiographical things. For semantic memory, it almost certainly doesn't work that way. Because semantic memory isn't about personal experience, right? Semantic memory, memory facts about the world. It's just facts about the world. So we talked the other day about canary and, sorry, robin, I guess is the example. I used robin and ostrich being birds. I don't, when I think about the word robin, I am not somehow reminded of the first time I learned about robins. Right? When I learned the word robin when I was, I don't know, three or four or something. Perhaps, I'm just guessing. But I don't know. Um, is it just new connections? The first thing we think of, I think, and, and this, this goes back to people like Ronald Tebb, the first thing we think of is new connections, new synapses, new connections between neurons would be new memories. And that makes a lot of intuitive sense. And it's probably partially true. Note the hedging, probably and partially. It's probably also the case, though, that there's something else going on. And we do know with simple learning paradigms like habituation, if you remember this from branded behavior. How many people here have not taken branded behavior? Let's go with that instead. You've all taken branded behavior? That's okay, one of you. Well, you're screwed. Um, <laughs> some of these slides are going to sink me into you. Uh, so, something like habituation, right, which is just not responding to a, a, a non-consequential stimulus. It's actually at the cellular level, right? It's not actually at the synaptic level. It's individual neurons. So there's something else that can go on. Okay, question so far, just by way of introduction there. To learn parts of the brain, really, you have to memorize them. And you got, most of you took brain behavior at some point, either with me or you may have taken Maury, or some of you people are taking neuropsych with Dwayne and things like, oh no, you can't be. Yeah. Well, you yeah, are because you're, in some weird situation where you're taking two classes that happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. how, what, why do they allow you to do things like that? What do you just go in there and charm people? To. You just charm people? I don't know. Dwayne, he worked his magic. I don't even know if he cleared it yet, so. <laughs> so that's, that'd be, that'd be Dwayne. Um, <laughs> you're very charming. That's the thing. Uh, it's a positive thing, though. Uh, so, 
And everybody else thought it was weird. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I'm really. It's not. He didn't think it was weird, right? It was just. So, knowing parts of the brain just takes memorization, like I say here, unless you know Greek and Latin, because most of the names were Greek and Latin. Uh, and it's organized at best semi randomly. This is because it's an evolved system, so evolution works with what it has and builds upon it. Uh, names are confusing. Uh, substantia negra means black stuff. And that's because it stains black uh, with, with silver nitrate. I mean, the, the only reason is because they, got, they had to give it a name and someone said, well, black stuff. You can't call it black stuff. That would be weird. Okay, remember Latin? And they go, <laughs> seriously, it's, it's really annoying. My favorite one, and I mentioned this in Married Behavior, is zona inserta, which is Latin for exactly what it looks like, uncertain zone. It sounds like part of a video game in a post-apocalyptic world. You and I will the uncertain zone. Do you wish to continue? I always feel like that in Toronto when you get up in the airport, uh, the, uh, what's it, the Philly Bishop Airport, and it says tunnel to Toronto. It's like that's a loading screen on my way to Toronto. It always giggles me. I think in video games. So we don't know what it does. We don't know what it is. We found something. It doesn't have a name. Let's call it the uncertain zone. I think that's pretty great. Um, some of the names make a little bit of sense. Hippocampus, of course, is named that because it's shaped kind of like a seahorse. I think it's shaped more like a question mark, but it's got a seahorse kind of shape to it. Hippocampus is Greek for seahorse. Right. And if you speak French, you know, for example, hippocampus, that's how you say seahorse. Uh, amygdala, that's a Greek word, means almond, and your amygdala is shaped like an almond. That's probably the best one of all of them. It's right next to the hippocampus in the visual system. And these two are actually pretty important for memory. Hippocampus is certainly important for memory. We talked the other day about HM, and HM didn't have a hippocampus after his operation, and he suddenly couldn't form any new episodic memories. Amygdala is right beside the hippocampus, and usually when two parts of the brain are beside each other and connected, they probably work together. That's a pretty reasonable uh, assumption. And the notion then, we know hippo, what does amygdala do? Amygdala is important in emotion, strong emotion, um, fear, surprise, anger. And we tend to remember things that bring out very strong emotions better than we remember things that don't. And this is true in us, and this is true in rats as well. It makes a great deal of evolutionary sense, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you should remember stuff that's surprising. You should remember stuff that's where something bad happened or where something really good happened. You shouldn't just forget stuff when something horrible happens to you. You should remember it so it doesn't happen to you again. Right? No questions about that? Little introduction there. Now, these are terms. Don't worry about them. Uh, as far as I'm going to tell you them because if you're reading a paper, for your essay, you may run into these terms. I'm not going to test you on these, okay? And because I tested many of you on them already, anyway. So, uh, anterior means towards uh, the front. Caudal, towards the back. Dorsal, also towards the back. This is really annoying, by the way. There's like three words, four terms for everything. It's, re it's just annoying. Uh, frontal. That's a good one. That means towards the front. I think I wish we used frontal, leftal, rightal, and backal, but we and midi, middle, but we don't. The frontal's good towards the front. 
Inferiors below, lateral to the side. Medial is the middle, like median. Posterior is towards the back. Rostral is towards the front from the Latin word rostrum, meaning beak or nose. Perfect Latin. Ego sub mobe commodus. So I said to the guy who gave me the my degree, he's a Western, they clasp your hands while they kneel down. down like this on this knee with your hands over your and the guy would clasp your hands and say, you're brilliant, I agree, I agree with your degree. And I looked up and I said, Ego some more than you. He said, what does that mean on your knee? It's Latin, don't speak Latin? And then he said, what? <laughs> yes, it's me always looking for a laugh or being a smart ass. Afterwards, my parents, my dad said, what did you say to that guy? <laughs> it was in Latin. At my PhD graduation, my dad wanted me to do something. He said, you know, I was, I was hoping you'd turn around and yell, fucking A, or something. I said, Dad, there's 800 people getting degrees today. It's not just about me. If you watch the video, which, why would you? But if you did, you can actually hear Dad say, patient, patient, patient. Uh, sagittal. Uh, that, it's a cut like that, sagittal plane. Superior, above. Doesn't mean better, it just means above, but called rate superior, so the highest one up. So it's north, it's not like it's the best lake. I always call it Lake, lake Ontario, I call it Lake Inferior. Nobody. Um, ventral, uh, towards the front. I think that's about it. Okay, because I noticed when I looked at the slides that I think I had dorsal again, so I've, I've deleted that. Things eventually get edited. So again, you're not gonna, I'm not going to test you on those things, but you will, if you're reading anything with brain stuff, very often you'll run into these kind of words. So at least you can go back and do a preview. Okay, this is a brain diagram of very uh, sort of call that gross anatomy. Your cerebellum, it's amazing that um, what your cerebellum does, a lot of movement, smooth movement, things like that, a lot of skilled movement. Uh, it's been said somewhat jokingly <coughs> that Your cerebellum is what you need, and the rest of that's just for vision in humans. Like everything else, and it isn't quite true. But for, for, for memory, the areas we're interested in, for the most part, are going to be te a temporal lobe area. So we get these things in your temporal lobe, which are by your temples. So hippocampus is there, amygdala is there. They're a little deep. They're not right on the cortex. And that's, that's the cortex. Cortex you see there. Um, that's for, 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 for making memories, right? for encoding them. My mom bought me this for Christmas. And she said, I noticed the fuzzy stuff's all the rage. Sure. It's nice. I like it. I wore it. Parietal lobe is interesting as far as memory goes because it's about left and right, sense of left and right. Uh, it's, it does some visual stuff. Uh, frontal lobe is more high order cognition. 
Uh, it's probably got something to do with personality, probably. But it's like high, higher order cognition, problem solving, that kind of thing. That's where you're using the stuff you have in memory to get through life. Um, occipital lobe is just doing vision, analyzing visual input, and we're pretty visual animals, so it makes sense. In fact, the only part of our brain that isn't doing visual processing is the frontal lobe. And there is a little tiny bit of visual processing going on there. But this is all vision. In fact, occipital lobe is often just called visual cortex. There is visual stuff going on in temporal and visual stuff going on in parietal. But for our purposes, the most important stuff is happening in the temporal lobe. And when you hear about lesions people have had, and a lot of times we learn a lot about, this was one of the themes of brain and behavior, right? We learn a lot about function by looking at dysfunction. We learn a lot about how memory works in humans by looking at individual cases, because we can't ethically you know, lesion people. So we, we look at accidents, like KC's accident. We, we, we'll talk about KC today. Uh, HM's operation, which was uh, And various other ones. There's a, a famous case Larry Squire studied, who I think is named W, uh, who had a fencing accident. So uh, a, a fencing foil went right through a guy's eye and made a very specific lesion. I mean, it's almost like it was designed by some neuroscientist. Um, and he has a, this, this case, uh, w, I think it's W, uh, has this very specific lesion, and it's a temporal lesion. So you'll probably run into these kind of things if you're doing any reading at all on this kind of stuff. And if you've listened to the podcast that I linked to on the website for the course with Brenda Milner, she talks about uh, HM. You'd also hear me in the introductory bit and also doing the commercial. That's a podcast that hasn't been made in years, but I kind of knew the guy, and he's like, I don't know anything about memory. He, like, develops drugs. This guy's like an entrepreneur, so he's taking his PhD and he's developing a drug that will stop head injuries, which is pretty amazing. Like, pretty, it's going to be really rich someday. It stops swelling at the blood-brain barrier. Like, it's incredible to work people. It's funded by the military, obviously, because there's a lot of head injuries there. What with the shooting and the helmets. Anyway. So Brenda talks, I call her Brenda, Milner, Dr. Milner, her doctor, Professor Milner, talks a lot about HM in that podcast. Um, okay, so subcortical, this is where we're going to be interested. So it's in the temporal lobe, then you get deeper. Okay, so here we go. Here's, so thalamus is just for a sensory switchboard or router. Um, hippocampus is the thing we care about for the most part. Right, so you can see. Here's hippocampus here, and it's, okay, seahorse. I still say, question mark. Hippocampus is important enough brain structure that people, people study it enough that, in fact, it has its own journal just called <coughs> hippocampus, which is a really good journal. Um, a buddy of mine, Rob Hampton, has a T-shirt that just says the hippocampus, everybody's playground. And it's got a fade away. 
And it's, it's one of those t-shirts that's a joke for like one in every 10,000 people that see it. But those are the best kind of t-shirts. I've got one that just has a Unix command on it. It's really funny if you know that. And then you also have to know this weird pop culture gaming reference. I've had one person get the joke ever. Amygdala also important right beside hippocampus. So here's amygdala. You see it's kind of got that almond shape. And it's right beside hippocampus. Um, there has been work where people have lesioned hippocampus and amygdala, or just amygdala, or just hippocampus, um, in monkeys, and looked at memory for lists of pictures, I guess is a way to put it, and found that it's hippocampus plus amygdala that's important, not just hippocampus. Not everybody is, uh, it's not easily replicable, let's put it that way. Though the point that that lab is making is that most of these hippocampal lesions that people do also take away a bit of amygdala. So it's not, that it's just amygdala. Or sorry, just hippocampus that's important. Amygdala also plays a role. I don't think it's mm, quite as important as her lab thinks it is. Who is that? I know it's her. And I know her first name. And I can't remember her last name. Damn it. So that's not going to help anybody. Elizabeth <laughs> thinks, God, that's annoying. Like I can literally, almost, I can close my eyes and see your face in front of me. Uh, that's not going to, no, because yeah, what you get from me is you get this. It looks exactly like her. Yeah, it looks just like her, right? Uh, so she's quite happy and has kind of hair like that. Not that she does not have hair like that at all. And she's also not blue. Um, so it's not helping me at all. God, it's bugging me, but I gotta move on. Uh, but anyway, her lab's point is that it's amygdala and hippocampus together that are the important thing. Not everybody, in fact, that's a minority view, but I wanted to get it out there because it is from a pretty famous scientist whose name I can't remember. Now, thalamus is not going to be that important in memory stuff. It's really just routing uh, sensory information, everything but smell. Smell's a special thing, and smell memory is fascinating if anybody wants to look at that. Because one of the interesting things about smell, because it doesn't go through thalamus, it goes right to what's called the olfactory bulb. We have this really tiny olfactory bulb because we're, we don't live in a, in a smelly world, we live in a visual world. Like, we are good at smelling. We're not like dogs. But the looking at, so that, that should tell you something. If, it's, if, if the sensory information is not moving through thalamus like everything else, it's probably processed differently. And the sense of smell is a chemical sense, right? It's detecting chemicals, concentrations of different chemicals in the air. So when it's something negative or positive, no matter what, um, you want to react to that very quickly. Uh, something dangerous or something that you could eat, basically. So our memory for smell is probably processed differently than our memory for everything else. Uh, an old friend of mine from grad school is probably the world's foremost expert on smell memory. I think she spells Rachel just like that. It may be A-E-L. Rachel Hertz. And uh, she does amazing work on smell memory. She also, like, she's the kind of person she shows up now and then on... National Geographic uh, channel and the Discovery Channel, things like that. Because she's the person. 
to talk to a bunch of this stuff. I know that thing with when you smell something and it just comes back to you immediately. Like, I remember my younger brother had a girlfriend. Uh, oh, God. There were two women before his wife. wife. And she walked in our house, and I, I was immediately brought back to kindergarten because she was wearing the same perfume my kindergarten teacher was. Right? So that kind of thing, that Proust thing. Uh, so if you could maybe somebody be interested in, in that. And I think the idea that this is a thalamus to bring it back to this makes us think that smell memory is somehow different than memory for any other sensory modality. Hypothalamus, eh, let's not worry about that. The, the succumbens is important because it's, well, I, I'll just say that it's about, you know, uh, homeostatic things. It's not important for us. Nucleus accumbens is because it's part of the reward system and things being rewarded and then doing them again, that's what learning is. And if memory is the persistence of learning, accumbens is going to clearly play a role. The medulla, not that important, it's sleeping wakeless. Right. So really, for us, hippocampus, amygdala, bit of thalamus, and accumbens are probably the areas we care most about as far as these subcortical structures. Okay. I could have taken these out, but that would have involved more effort, and I just reused the slides. Okay. Two basic types of cells in the brain, uh, neurons and glial cells. Most of you know that there's lots of kinds of neurons, lots of kinds of glial cells. Neurons do the transmitting, glial cells do support functions. So there's a lot of, like I said, a lot of types. There's what? Five types of glial cells, seven types of neurons. And we can think of how this, whoops, the simplest thing we can think of here is the connection between an, its neuron to neuron, axon to dendrite. We don't have to worry about the other six kinds of synapses. Here's, this diagram shows up in every course I've ever taught, uh, except stats, and it, maybe it will in stats when you open snow it in. Because moths and bats just shows up. <laughs> I don't think I talked about moths and bats today, which surprises me. Um, I like this diagram because it's better than anything I can draw. And it's very basic. This is a very basic bipolar cell, as you can see. So direction, right? The impulse travels down the dendrite to the nucleus, out the axon, out these teleodendria that connect to the next neuron, which connects to a dendrite. And again, I know most of you know that there are six other ways that there could be connections, but let's not let it bother us. And there's also electrical synapses. Let's not worry about the important thing is axon dendrite. You know the kind of synapse you learned about in intro? That's all we care about here. But you can see how new connections being made could be new memories. And it's intuitively very pleasing because it feels like you've made a connection when you learn something. Right? So it's also intuitively pleasing. I keep hoping when I see that, 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 that uh, her name's going to come back to it. It still hasn't. Lately, I'm on a halt and catch fire binge. I'm just finishing that up. But Mad Ben always comes back. I've ordered a T-shirt that just says Sterling Cooper Draper Price Advertising. Cool. I'm such a loser. <laughs> I'm such a loser. Okay. Between the ones is this gap, the synapse. That's a reference to a song from 1980 that no one else here knows. 
I like some damage. Um, drug transmitters go across the gap, connects around the fire. Yeah, that's not really get too concerned about this. Why not a direct connection, I guess? Mostly what people ask when they're first learning about nervous systems. I mean, I, I remember asking this to myself. I didn't put my hand up for this one. This is what I thought. This is probably obvious, and I don't want to look kind of silly, so I didn't put my hand up in intro. But it seemed to me, why don't we just have wires? Wires are gaps. Well, in fact, it makes a great deal of sense because we can allow, uh, when we have these gaps, we have these modulatory properties, modulatory properties, I'm sorry, of drugs um, and other chemicals. So drugs, uh, other neurotransmitters, there are modulators, And this is where, if we have ever get to the point where we make smart drugs that work, right? There are people who say they make smart drugs right now, and there are supplements that say they're smart drugs, and none of them really are. Okay? But if we ever get to that point, it'll be working at the synaptic level, almost certainly, it seems to me. Drugs have been developed now to erase memories. erase really bad memories, you shock a rat, okay? And a protein that's expressed when a, uh, when a rat gets shocked, it's called EKM zeta, okay? And it seems to help encode the relationship between the, the context variables and, and the negative consequences. However, if we block PKM zeta a day later, which is very interesting, with a, with a drug called ZIP, which is, I'm sure they thought of that first and then made a backronym out of it. And then we call it ZIP, and then we'll have to figure out what that means. What ZIP does, it actually is a PKM zeta inhibitor, and now the rat doesn't remember the shock. Because he'll go back into that context. It's really cool. And it works at the synaptic level. We're not there with humans. But wouldn't it be nice if someone had per, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, if you could just give them a drug and it's gone? Right? That'd be superb. And a lot of people say, well, what about the root of the problem? The root of the problem is the chemistry in your brain. Change it. That's my view. A lot of people don't like that view because, I don't know, No, it's one time. And then it's gone. And then just to build off that, when yeah. they get shocked again, they have to get the drug again? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, so like you can just shock them and Yeah. Oh, no, well, you're not doing that, though. That's just mean, you know? <laughs> you know see, I, I don't know. I think people have this idea that people that work with yeah, rats. Right? People that work with, <laughs> I can see why they haven't done this on humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You people seem to think that like lab scientists are like, I wonder if there's any more ways we can shock a rat today. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, these shocks aren't horrible. One of the ways you test to see if, honestly, I've, I've not worked with shock uh, in my own work, but I have been in labs where people worked with shock, and the way you test the shock is you put your hand on it and you see how uncomfortable it is. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a small tingle you feel, and that's enough that, that a rat doesn't like it. You wouldn't like it either. If, if, if suddenly your feet were all tingly, you'd go, what's going on? But it's not like you shock them to the point where it, they, they hook. It's, it's not. You can't do that. That that doesn't ever pass ethics. Yeah. Delicious. 
Um, so in, this is this is going to allow for these. Like I said, if we ever develop drugs that are smart drugs, or I guess we can call this almost a dumb drug, right? Um, if, if we ever develop those things, um, it's going to work at the synaptic level. So learning and memory, there's got to be something synaptic about it. There's got to be new connections. Uh, I can't see how that isn't part of the explanation. So is it new synapses? Now, one of the ways we can look at this, a lot of this stuff's going to be animal work. So it almost has to be. So what you're doing here is you've got uh, rats, and you have two sets of rats. One group is housed individually in hanging wire mesh cages, which is the standard rat thing. And another group are housed collectively. Communists. Joke. Company. Uh, so another group are housed communally, and also they're played with every day, and they get toys in the, in the box. And rats are actually really nice animals. They're great, they great pets. Can you see the teeth? Really? Yeah. Not mine. Not mine, yeah. <laughs> I don't let any other animal near my mouth. <laughs> any other species of animal <laughs> near my mouth? Yeah. yeah, no. It's like when people have dogs that lick their faces. No. <laughs> don't want your dog licking my face. I want to hit the owner, not the dog. That's the dog's fault. Yeah, dog doesn't yeah, dog does know any better, right? Dogs should know better. People should have taught it. You don't just lick. Anyway, he's giving you a kiss. No, it's licking salt off your face. I hate to be a killjoy, but <laughs> that's what's going on there. Um, so you take these rats, then you compare the one group that is enriched. So they got toys, they get played with about 10 minutes a day individually by the experimenter, uh, and the group that don't, and you compare them on uh, a maze. And there are fewer mistakes made by the enriched rats. They also have a thicker cortex. And so, uh, so there's more cortical development and thicker, so thicker and also more dense. So there's more cells per uh, cubic millimeter. Uh, Long-term potentiation is clearly a, uh, something that's important here. Long-term potentiation is a uh, phenomenon whereby a circuit in, and this is usually a circuit in the hippocampus, in an area of the hippocampus called CA1, uh, where once that circuit fires once, the next time it fires, it fires more quickly. Okay? And hippocamp, uh, sorry, long-term potentiation is mediated by not a neurotransmitter, but a neuromodulator called NMDA. Not MDMA, that's ecstasy. It's NMDA. They're entirely different drugs. So NMDA is necessary for long-term potentiation. So we can block NMDA, and we don't get LTP. Okay. Now, what we do in these cases, what well, I say, I shouldn't say we. I've never done this kind of work, but what people do in these things is they take a rat and they use what's called uh, a Morris water maze, which is not a maze; it's a pool. It's about a meter in diameter and maybe 10 centimeters deep and it's got a little platform just below the surface and you put the rat in and rats don't like to swim they can they prefer not to so they swim to the platform they stand on it and you take it off and you dry it off and you put it back in its cage and you thank it 
Well, when you put them in under a heat lamp, they dry them. Not for too long, because then, yeah, you, then might, you, cook. Yeah, you cook them again. You're really <laughs> obsessed with cooking rats, and I find it disturbing. Um, I called you charming before. Now I'm just scared of you. Uh, so, and the thing is, you say, well, can't the rats see the... Well, you fill it with skim milk. Use an opaque liquid. So you use skim milk because it's not food, so you may as well use it for something. Use skim milk because it's not going to, um, it cleans off easy. It's not full of fat, so it's not going to go rancid on the rats. It's not going to smell bad. You just wipe them off with a bit of water and uh, dry them off and put them on the heat lamp for a couple seconds, or maybe you know, a couple minutes, and then you put them back in their cage. The rats learn to do this very quickly because they hate swimming. They learn where the platform is. They learn this very quickly unless you block long-term potentiation. Then they don't learn it. Long-term potentiation is about a circuit firing more quickly. It's like what's called uh, Donald Hebb, uh, you know, famous uh, Canadian neuroscientist uh, who Milner talks about, in fact, in that podcast, um, called the, well, he called it a Hebb synapse. I don't think he called it a Hebb synapse. He didn't think about an ego like that. They called it, they talked about these new connections being made. Uh, it looked really promising, and it still is important in learning, but there are cases where you can block LTP and still get learning. If you give the rat a lot of pre-training in swimming, it will learn to find the, the platform without LTP. So LTP is important. It's not the only story. That's work uh, that was done by a friend of mine, uh, Deb Saussier, who is now the president of Grant McEwen University in Edmonton. Questions on that? So LTP is probably important. It probably is, it certainly has something to do with learning, but it is not learning. In the late 80s, people were like, we found what learning, how it works. And it turned out Deb showed it's not the only thing. And it's not like this was published somewhere obscure. It was published in a little journal called Nature. So kind of important. Nature don't screw up much. Okay, now on the other, okay, so this is at the, we're talking about neuron level, right? Oh, I should tell you one other thing you can do at the, at the neuron level. I didn't have this in the slide, and I meant to put this in. One of the things you can look at in animals is expression. You can see what neurons have fired, what individual neurons have fired, without having to do single cell recording. see what individual neurons are fired, and that's when they, there's this a protein expressed called zinc. And if you see concentrations of zinc around a neuron, you know that neuron is fired. Now, on the other hand, you have to do single cell recording where you put a lecture in a live animal. With zinc, you have to now kill the animal. You've got to you've do a task and you kill it, so you have its brain. But it's a technique that's used a lot to see indivi what individual neurons are fired, which is pretty cool. My kids do a work like that. She does such better stuff than I've ever done, and she's 25. It's really annoying. 
let's move over from birds and rats. Let's move over to people again and look at as much as people are boring and uninteresting. They're horrible. I hate people. Um, just generally. Oftentimes, when, I, when something, when I get an email that annoys me, my wife will hear me say, I hate people. And they're never, by the way, those emails are never from students. You can guess who they're from. They're mostly from Dwayne. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. They're from Paul. But, again, kidding. like, you know, poking around someone's brain with an electrode. So what Penfield did, um, Walter Penfield, who was in Montreal, Montreal Neurological Institute, uh, he, when he was, let's say he's looking for a, a tumor. Now, how do you find a brain tumor today? You put somebody on an MRI and say, look, right there, tumor. I know exactly where it is, and if you can, you go get it. On the other hand, Back in the 30s, 20s, when someone had a seizure, let's say, for example, uh, you might think, oh, maybe that's a tumor. So you go into the person's brain, and the person's awake. By the way, you're awake during brain surgery, typically. You're really doped up, like you aren't aware. You're, it's like you're really hammered. Okay, so you're full of almost putting you to sleep doses of some barbiturator nowadays, some benzodiazepine or something like that. But you're really kind of hammered. But, and you've got a local anesthetic on your head because they used a saw to cut into your brain, like into your skull. So that can't be fun. You'd have to be kind of hammered to be laying there going, oh man, I feel like someone's cutting into my head. <laughs> so you don't actually feel that. And there's, your, your brain, while it's full of neurons, has, doesn't have any sensory neurons. So you don't feel anything in classic heritage moment. And if the person smelled burnt toast before they had their seizure, it's like, okay, I'll put two and two together and I'll get four, meaning that's probably where the tumor is. Now I'm going to go in there and take it out. But while the person was awake and responding with what they were experiencing, a lot of times it'd be things like a limb would move, a finger would move, whatever. But sometimes people reported memories. And they people would say things like, I'm at my sixth birthday. Oh, it's Christmas last year. Things like that. Like things would come back to them. Now, not nearly as much as people make out. This does show up in Penfield's writing. It showed up in his notes. I'm not going to say Penfield overplayed this. I don't think he did. But I think people overplayed it when they read it. Now, people. The thing is, he wasn't doing this to find. Out where, how memories were stored or where they were stored. He was doing this to find out where tumors were. So he was kind of busy with the neurosurgery. So it was a sort of a side effect in some respects. Penfield's important. Uh, the uh, Donald Hebb building, which is with a psychology building at McGill University, is on Rue Dr. Penfield. It's on Dr. Penfield Street. So two important people. Okay. 
Okay, so an EEG is the oldest form of brain imaging. It's kind of brain imaging-y. This seems to have about okay, 128 electrodes on it. You can do image sort of, you can do stuff with, with see what parts of the brain are active. What you want to do at a very macro level with an EEG This is completely non-invasive. Um, you can do this simply enough by with a, with a shower cap and some electrodes. And in fact, a uh, student two years ago of mine, uh, Taylor Byron, who's now in grad school at Mac, uh, Taylor used, um, uh, yeah, literally went and bought shower caps and hooked up to an EEG machine that uh, Dr. Townsend, George Townsend in computer science, because he does brain-computer interface. And we had people seeing when, I was trying to determine, uh, Taylor was, when does a square become a circle perceptually? So she had these changing stimuli and see if they said square or circle and also see what the how the activation changed. Kind of cool though. So it's not like you're seeing everything that's happening in the brain here, but you're finding out overall levels. And it's just it's it's just changes in the amount of electricity, because there's a lot of electricity in here in different areas of your brain. <coughs> Excuse me, this might be used in, so diagnostically, things like uh, people with epilepsy. A friend who didn't know she had epilepsy until one day she had a grand mal seizure. And then, this is a scary, it's a scary thing to watch. Um, she, she went to the hospital and they try to induce a seizure in you, so they keep you awake for like 24 hours, they don't feed you, they flash lights at you. It's apparently really unpleasant, and you're wearing an EEG the whole time. But the thing is, they're doing that so they can hopefully induce a seizure and then see where the seizure is, what, where it starts. She's fine. She's doing a PhD in health and science research or something at Emory University of Newfoundland now. She was my honor student years ago. And she said, when, they, when she got diagnosed, they, they, they said, uh, the doctor said, do you ever have times when you just sort of space out and don't notice anything? And she said, yeah, you know, like everybody. And she, the doctor went, no, not like everybody. That's called an absent seizure. If you're having those all the time, you should have told somebody. Right, so sometimes she'd just be off in the distance and then come back. That's, a, that's what's called an absence seizure, which is going away. But she just figured everybody did that. But we can, so we can do memory work like this, a little harder. Um, probably wouldn't use it too much. We're more likely to use something like, say, a CAT scan, which is just, uh, so it's like that's photography. Yeah, it's just uh, x-rays from various different angles and the computer then builds an image. It's going to give you a function, I'm oh, sorry, form, not function. Uh, so it's going to show you where you have, might have something missing. Okay. Nice picture though, look at that. Corpus callosum, right? And we've got the uh, cerebellum, we've got the cortex here, ventricle, pond, it's beautiful. Not a bad picture. Uh, PET scans, uh, don't worry about how they work, you drink radioactive glucose basically. I won't go ahead and say exactly how it works, but when your when the glucose is taken up into parts of your brain, it emits radiation, and then you can see how it looks like. You can see the activation. The reason this is pointing here is because we would expect it to be symmetrical, but it's not. It's not so symmetrical. This has been used a lot in memory work when people are looking at. You have people in a PET scanner, and you're having them, let's say, recall a list of words. And you see 
what does the activation look like when they are remembering a word and when they're forgetting a word? Uh, Larry Squires does some cool work where, I think that's Larry Squires, uh, remembering a word or a false memory of a word. And the false memory looks different than a real memory. Pretty cool. I think that's Larry Squires. calendar notification or something that I obviously can't be at because I'm here. The whole university, all the profs share a Google calendar, so whenever somebody has an event, which is fine, but it's like, I can't be holding that. God, you're busy. The best thing out there is the MRI, obviously. Um, MRI is going to give you, an fMRI is going to give you form and function. Don't worry about how it works. It's magnetic. Magnets, how do they work? Nobody? Okay. By the way, if you have a clown posse, I think the, the descriptive term insane is redundant. It's redundant. The insane clown posse. Nobody. Okay. The cool thing with an MRI is it can show you, fMRI can actually show you form and function. And with some lag, it can show you pretty much real-time changes in firing. It's still at a macro level. You're not looking at something like exact expression where you can look at individual neuron. But what you're seeing here is you're seeing parts, uh, to use the term people you tend to use, light up. This comes from head scans, actually. So you can actually watch different parts of people's brains be active. Now, of course, these things are all really what originally they're developed for and used for mostly... Uh, diagnostic stuff, but it's still the case that it's important. Uh, MRIs are important for uh, memory research. These things used to be really expensive, like $40, 50000000 million a pop, like to buy the machine, not to do the uh, scans. Uh, the healthcare system will be completely collapsed if that plays the case. They're now cheap enough that you can get, like where my daughter works, the lab she works in, they have a bird MRI. You know. Now, I'm not saying that the thing was cheap, but some scientists have a grant to buy one, and the government doesn't tend to give out $50 million grants to anybody. But so how do you combine all this stuff? So it's, it's easy, but it's a little expensive. It's expensive because either you own your own MRI, which you don't, so you book time. And if you're going to go down to a, you're going to go to a hospital typically or some imaging center, you have to go at, at an off you have to go at off hours. You can't cuz it says no, we, we during the day that's when people who have appointments. So you're going to go probably in the middle of the night. So you have to get subjects in at the middle of the night and, and run these experiments and you still have to pay a lot of money to use the gear. Now you have to have somebody who's a trained MRI technician, let's say, or a trained PET scanner technician. They can't just say, Dave, you want to use it? It's okay, just read the manual. It doesn't work that way. They need somebody who knows what they're doing. So it's a little extensive, but it is pretty easy. Um, you put a subject in MRI, PET scanner, you scan. So this is at rest, let's call that. You typically have people close their eyes. Have the person read a passage of some sort, let's say. Do a distractor task. Count backwards by 17 through 10,000. 
do a stand, try to remember the list of words, and stand during that. That's the typical approach. Right, so it's really not, if you take a look, and I'm sure somebody will do work uh, for, for their essay or their paper, rather end their um, presentation on some stuff with, with, with you know, scanning and, and memory and such. Uh, you'll find that you don't have to know a great deal about how MRIs work or anything. You just know that they show form and function. It's a pretty straightforward approach. You can just see that. Okay. Questions about that before we go to a few results? Okay. Um, at the simplest level of learning and memory is we have um, aplesia, which are little slugs, about 2,000 neurons, and the genome's been mapped, and so has every connection of every neuron been mapped for these animals. It's great. Um, and you can, they have, they withdraw their guilt when something nasty gets towards them. This makes sense because it's an important part of information that you're trying to communicate. So what you do is, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can actually sort of touch them with a little pipette, or you can actually just spray water at them. But eventually they learn, and the first thing they do, they withdraw their guilt. But eventually what they do is they don't, because it's in fact, the notion is they habituate. They, it's neither good nor bad, it just is. Right? This is Kendall's, uh, Kendall's work, for which he won a Nobel Prize. Who's also interviewed on the uh, podcast Futures and Biotech? So if you go back to that catalog of that podcast, you'll find an episode with Kendall where he talks about this stuff with my buddy Mark. One I was not on. I eventually come on whenever there's a brain topic, uh, brain and memory topic. Mark knows about brains and genomes and things. He, when it gets to behavior, he goes nuts. So what happens here is. It's basically a, the connection is so simple because it's such a simple animal. We're basically going from a sensory neuron to a motor neuron. Motor neuron does the withdrawal reflex. The sensory neuron detects the touch. That's how direct this connection is. So you can see why we have a, an ideal animal to test this in because we have a simple system. Eventually, this sensory neuron doesn't fire the motor neuron when it senses the splash of water or the touch of the pipette. So that's not happening here at the synapse, is it? I call that the synapse. It's not happening there. It's actually happening in this sensory neuron. That neuron is releasing, it's not releasing as much neurotransmitter. So this neuron has actually learned something. So we're, now, look, habituation is the simplest form of learning, and the persistence of habituation is the simplest form of memory. No doubt about that. And this is a very simple animal. But it works this way in cats, too. So you use a startle reflex in cats, so you can use a quite a loud noise, and you, they start. Or you can use an oriented response where they look at the system 
and eventually they don't. And if you take a, what you do in this case is you're doing single cell recording, so you actually have a, uh, an electrode that goes to the skull and it's actually um, running across the membrane, the cell membrane of one neuron. And the same thing happens with cats, where they actually the sensory neuron doesn't fire the that doesn't fire it. So again, the learning is happening at the cellular level, not the synaptic level. If it's happening that way in a plesion, it's happening that way in cats, it's happening that way in us. It's a pretty safe bet. Uh, the idea of feature detection. So there are cells that detect line orientations. Okay, so like that, or like that, or like that. That's work by Hubel and Weasel. I.E. or E.I., I'm not sure. Hubel and Weasel, they want to know about bias for that. That's in the cat visual cortex. Now, what's that have to do with learning and memory? Well, first of all, if we're going to detect a stimulus, we have to detect, say, let's say lines. And if we have to detect, if we're going to remember an object, we probably also activate those features. Now, okay, fine, those are line orientations. A couple of years later, well, into the 80s, so that's, yeah, five years later, uh, David Parrott, found single cells. Well, I'll go back for a second. People used to joke about, oh, oh, I see. So th those three all connect to, to, find, to, 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 to a, a cell that's a triangle cell. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, then is there a grandmother cell? Oh, is there just a cell that fires when your grandmother's in the room and there's like gray hair and nice and too much perfume and wrinkly skin and slips you a 20? Did your grandmother ever do that? Because my grandmother would always like, when they were leaving, my grandparents, like a $5 bill was like, There you go. Yeah, I, I transfer money into my daughter's account now and then. It's like, oh, or whatever. My dad didn't say, that's what we do here. Parent. But when you're a grandparent, I think you feel like you have to do it under the radar so the parents don't know. Whatever. So people mocked the idea. And then Dave Parrott <laughs> found cells that responded to individual monkeys in monkey cortex, which is a good name for a band, in monkey cortex. That's just a good name. Uh, probably a prog rock type group. Uh, so what Parrot found is that these monkeys, he showed them individual pictures of monkeys, and then he'd have one, one cell would fire when they saw Steve the monkey, and another cell would fire when they saw Eddie the monkey. I'm assuming the monkey's names, of course, are Steve and Eddie. Or Steve and Edie. <laughs> that was just for me. Um, so I remember him talking. One of the reasons I actually do what I do for a living is because of David Parrott. He came and gave a talk at Western when I was a, an undergrad. I was in third year. I just got a summer insert, so I was doing my own work, uh, research work in the summer. And there was this sign, and it said, uh, David Parrott, University of St. Andrews, so that's a pretty prestigious university in Scotland, and, and it, it said after his name, FRS, which is Fellow of the Royal Society. Wow. So that's a big thing. You don't get asked to do that unless you're pretty famous. Become part of that unless you're famous. You don't apply. They ask you to come in. Cool. I'll go visit single cell recording in monkeys. And I'm imagining 
uh, a distinguished gentleman, probably in his 60s, is going to come in. And this guy, remember, this is 1987. This guy walks in the room, and he's wearing green pants. He has boots that go up past his knees with chains off of them, a leather jacket, and a purple mohawk. And he comes in and goes, right, we're going to talk about a single cell recording and some monkeys. And I thought, I'm totally going to be a scientist. There's apparently no dress code. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and he's kind of dressed like me. I didn't have the mohawk, but I had the boots. Uh, so and he was great. He's a, he's a great talk. So he actually found the grandmother's cell, except it's in monkeys. But I mean, it's pretty clear we do have single cells that re respond to very complex stimuli. So when they're activated again, that would be memory, right? And I, I literally remember people mocking the grandmother cell. And I remember Parrot's talk, and someone said, so you found the grandmother cell. I said, well, grandmother monkeys, yes. It's the greatest thing. And he had a mohawk. <laughs> so that's the face detectors that they put. There is a facial area, an area for remembering faces in your brain, the fornix fibrium, in the human brain. One of the results here is that um, Human faces are easier to discriminate from each other for humans. But you might think to yourself, well, monkey faces are going to be easier for monkeys. No, human faces are easier to discriminate from monkeys, too. I don't know what it is, but I think we just look more. There's something special about human faces. We're, first of all, we're the most primate looking of all primates. Right? We, there's no snouts, uh, all that kind of stuff. We've got visible lips, visual, visible uh, whites of our eyes, which is pretty rare in, in animals. But the other thing we have, and important evolutionarily, is that to be able to, to tell that I was nice to you, you should be nice to me, you were mean to me, I should be mean to you, right, reciprocal altruism, that kind of thing, I should be able to remember who you are individually. So it's, a, it's probably an adaptation um, that we all look different. It's different with chimps are more likely to, this, to, to, to confuse individual chimps than they are to confuse individual people. When you, when you show them headshots, so it's not like those are very cool. The idea of place cells. Uh, this is work by O'Keefe and Nadel. Uh, so this is in rat hippocampus. Hippocampus is everybody's playground. Um, they found that if you had a rat and you put it in one part of a, of a say, an open field, which is a piece of nature, um, one cell would fire if the rat was here, the cell would fire if the rat was here, the cell would fire if the rat was here. That's work by O'Keefe, Nadel, Nobel Prize. They also wrote a book called Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map. And I think somehow they got screwed around by the publisher. So when they went to, they decided they didn't want, they let the copyright lapse. You can now download it for free, which is great. I think they got screwed around by a publisher. That's my story. HM um, and KC, you can talk about them together. HM, of course, the, the case, and you got talked with HM already. So HM couldn't form new episodic memories. Though HM, over time, said Brendan Miller was familiar. Miller worked with HM for 50 odd years. Which is really a testament, by the way, to a couple things. HM's family allowing him to be studied. 
and we should really think every time you read a, that, that, a paper that has HM as a or a reference to a paper that has HM as a, a subject, remember that this is a guy who's severely disabled because of an operation that was done with the best of intentions but was not the, the wrong thing to do. But so HM put the time in, though he didn't remember it, which is sad. But his family allowed, basically had the notion of uh, something good has to come of this, so you should think of that. HM eventually recognized Raymond Milner, but not recognition, it was more a sense of familiarity. He didn't know her name was Raymond Milner. He didn't say, oh, hi, Brenda. She would have to introduce herself every time she met HM. But it, uh, over the years, he started, she started to seem familiar to him. So he would say things like, did we go to high school together? Are you on TV? And by the way, uh, people do that to this day, people who don't have brain lesions, when you see a picture who's familiar, but you don't know where you know them from, the, the most common things to say are, we must have been kids together, like in, in high school or something, or you must be famous. Right? Because that's the best explanation for familiarity, but you don't know why. It's your brain telling you stories. It makes sense. Casey, who just died, geez, last year, had a horrible motorcycle accident in the 1970s. Um, he wasn't wearing a helmet, and he was thrown about 30 meters from where he fell off his bike. So that should tell you something. Uh, severe temporal damage. Uh, some frontal damage as well. Uh, couldn't form in new memories. Really semantic. That's like a semantic sum. He couldn't form new episodic memories, but also the key thing was he couldn't remember any of his old episodic memories. They were all gone. And that's where you think, I mean, HM at least had a life that he could remember from before his operation. Casey's memory was gone. anything with a, a v, like an old VW Beetle engine. And when you said, how do you know that? He said, I don't know. How does, doesn't everybody know that? He didn't remember. But, well, this is my thing. I'm interested in this. I'm, I'm an engineer. Very sad story. Uh, he had sort of flat affect as well, which isn't surprising considering the fact that everything self-referential about the guy is gone. Is it gone or is it inaccessible? Probably inaccessible. The weird thing was he could learn things, but not remember learning them, like HM. So he could learn a new association. So you could teach him a sentence that there's no way he ever heard. The policeman was on, no, it wasn't the policeman, it was the sentence. The assassin is on a boat. Pauling, Pauling's group worked with Casey a lot. Pauling loved using the word assassin. So, and then he'd show a picture of, of I don't know, I'm going to draw this, but what am I doing that? Of a canoe. So he'd show a picture of a canoe and say, the assassin was on a boat. It's something like that. And then six, and he'd do it over and over again. And six months later, <coughs> you show him the picture and you say, what comes to mind? And he says, the assassin. Okay. So he's learned something. He didn't know why. Whereas you would go, 
that weird sense, look, the assassin of the bone angle, you're weird. <laughs> your assassin obsession. Uh, I got to meet him. Uh, it's a special guy. It was a very weird experience because it's just very, uh, you feel really bad for the guy. And again, his family, all credit to them. They said something good has to come from this horrible accident. He also was aware that he had a memory problem. One, a friend of mine told me that he said to KC once, okay, um, I just gave, like, he gave KC a list of words and said, I'd like you to recall them. And he'd say, so he said, I, I just gave you a list of words. Uh, which, could you recall them for me? And he looked at me and said, uh, I can guess. So like, he, had, he was aware that, he didn't have, that his memory was gone. So it's an interesting sort of metacognitive. Questions about that? Looking at Casey's case, and H, or HGM's case, could, it's a potential paper right there. Uh, okay, we know memories are up there somewhere. Yeah, first thing. Um, we're a long way from figuring out sort of where and how they're stored. We're way closer than we were when I was uh, an undergrad like you guys are. So we're a long way from figuring out where or how, but we'll get there. And finally, once we do, because a lot of people say, okay, that's going to be the end of people studying memory behaviorally. I don't think so. There still has to be somebody to, to design clever behavioral experiments that go together with brain function. Right? So someone still has to be able to design these experiments. So it's not like it's going to be the end of, of the science of memory. It's just going to bring in more neuroscience. This, the idea of the neuroscience shift that everything's getting more neuroscience-y makes a lot of sense because we're getting better at neuroscience and it's the seat of behavior. The brain. Questions? Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand. You folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI you're all gonna die screaming. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable, I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't want to nitpick, Tom, but is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall. Maybe that's okay for now, but someday you'll be out of You'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly oh.
I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da- uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures in algoma university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh- uh, uh, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to mash them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.